Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA. If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 156 of the Leading Learning Podcast. Today, we're going to answer questions about learning business strategy that came out of a recent session we did with the Wisconsin Society of Association Executives. Before we get to those questions, though, we have a message from our sponsor for the fourth quarter of 2018. Our sponsor this quarter is Review My LMS, a collaboration between our company, Tagoras, and 100 Reviews. As the name suggests, Review My LMS is a site where users can share and access reviews of learning management systems, and the focus is specifically on systems that are a good fit for learning businesses, meaning organizations that market and sell lifelong learning. Contribute a review, and you get access to all existing and future reviews, and there are already 130 on the site. And if you don't have a review to contribute, there's also a subscription option. For details, check out ReviewMyLMS.com. Definitely do check out Review My LMS. It is set up so that you can access some of the reviews initially without even having to sign up, so that will give you a good feel for what to expect. For now, though, let's get back to the focus of today's episode. What we plan to cover came out of a recent webinar that we collaborated on with the Wisconsin Society of Association Executives, or WSAE, Jeff, you were the one who worked with WSAE on this, and my understanding was that it was billed as an online mentoring session focused on strategy and business models for association online education programs. That's right. WSAE had been hearing from its members that they were looking for help with online education, so they contacted us about serving as a resource and then reached out to their members to determine what questions it would be helpful to address during the webinar. So, What we're going to do here is uh, kind of a replay, but a little bit of a revamp of that session in which we'll pose and answer the questions that were the focus of the webinar. And I'll highlight highlight a few things before we dive into this. Um, First of all, you know, even though this was an an association and an organization that has associations as members that we were speaking to, the points that we cover here do not apply only to associations. They apply to really anybody who's in the learning business. So that's one thing to highlight. Another is that uh, they were interested specifically in online education. We think holistically about the learning portfolio. So really everything we'll say here applies to pretty much any learning business, regardless of the formats that you're focused on. And then the last thing that I do want to note is that uh, this is another example of us trying to practice what we preach and uh, leveraging some content that uh, we already have. We already you know, did this as a webinar session. We're now going back to revisit this and revamp it as a podcast episode. So now let's jump into that first question. 
which is about the typical trajectory of education programs. What is that trajectory like from planning all the way up to maturity? And of course, handily, our learning business maturity model offers a way to think about that trajectory. And we are getting a a lot more... uh questions, inquiries about the model. So it's nice to be able to raise it here. Now, of course, we're talking specifically about learning businesses with the maturity model. So again, these are organizations that market and sell lifelong learning. And at least that's how we think about it. And we've defined that much more extensively in other places, but that'll that'll do for purposes of, of this episode. And you know, the aim with the maturity model was to provide a framework to help surface and assess the potential problem areas for learning businesses, but then to provide a, a clear way to move from problem to opportunity, and then we hope to innovation. And it's also our intention that, you know, the model that we've developed is not just descriptive, so we're not just describing, you know, what a, a learning business is, but also prescriptive um, and, and motivational and, and prompting action and giving that action some direction and focus. So that's, that's kind of what we set out to do with the maturity model. Now, we have, of course, referenced the learning business maturity model a number of times on the podcast, and we even dedicated an entire episode to it. So we'll be sure to link to those um, past uh, episodes as a reference. But for the convenience of you listening now, we'll also give a brief overview here. So we gauge maturity in this model according to characteristics and performance in five domains. And these are five domains that we found to be critical to the success of the learning and education businesses that we've been involved with over our years of experience. And those domains are leadership, strategy, capacity, portfolio, and marketing. In cases in which the learning business is part of a larger organization, um, and that's true with most trade associations and professional societies, uh, in those cases, then the model deals with those domains in the context of the learning and education line of business, not the entire organization. So when we say strategy, we're talking about strategy for that learning business, not necessarily strategy for the entire organization. With the first domain, leadership, for example, we're talking about leadership of that learning business. And I'm not going to go into the details about each domain, but we'll uh, include a link to the show notes where you can find out more about the domains and access questions uh, about each of those domains. And those questions are actually going to help you home in on where your organization is, how it's doing in each of those domains. And then the other aspect of the maturity model is the stages. And we see maturity progressing through four stages. So stage one, we characterize as static. Stage two is reactive. Stage three is proactive. And then stage four is innovative. In each stage, we gauge maturity according to the characteristics and performance in those five domains of leadership, strategy, capacity, portfolio, and marketing. And we've put together some profiles that are basically snapshots of learning businesses at each stage of maturity. Now, these profiles that um, we put together assume similar performance across all five domains. However, we know in reality, most businesses will actually perform better in some of the domains and worse in others. So you might be proactive in terms of of your portfolio, but you might be more reactive in terms of marketing or, or vice versa. So that's that's a good snapshot there of the maturity model. And again, we will we'll link to other episodes. We'll link to the the visuals uh, and the materials that go with the maturity model. So if you're not already familiar with those, uh, you'll be able to get them through the show notes to this episode. And you know the, the next question that came up was, 
was basically a, a follow-on that um, that I thought was really interesting and, and certainly an, an important question to ask. And that's, you know, considering the model, are many associations thinking too small? And again, this this applies to, you know, any learning business, not just a, an association. You know, why, why should a learning business aspire to maturity? What are the benefits? Um, and, you know, this really, this really is a fundamental question, I guess, for any organization that's going to consider using the maturity model to, to be asking. Definitely. And, uh, you know, we see at least two key reasons why learning businesses, um, at least most of them probably need to be thinking bigger and striving toward maturity. The first is, is that um, being mature is really about effective delivery of value. So education and learning are usually a central part of the value proposition for uh, an association, or if they aren't part of that, uh, if they aren't central to the value proposition now, there's a good chance they need to be for um, the organization to remain and sustain relevance in uh, in the future. And pursuing maturity means pursuing higher value for members and customers. So that's reason one, just that that being more mature in your learning business means you're delivering more value. The second reason is that we are in an increasingly competitive market for adult learning. It's really a booming business these days. We're seeing big commercial players um, get into the space. We're seeing new startups. We're seeing infusions of venture capital. And so if you as an organization are not striving to continually improve and mature, there's a really good chance that some or even all of your uh, education market share is going to erode. And it's funny, we just we just sent uh, a birthday card to a friend and uh, the message in that birthday card, I, I won't describe the picture that was on the, the cover of it, but uh, the message inside was that maturity is overrated. <laughs> um, and and maybe, maybe in the case of birthdays it is, but I think in the case of learning businesses, maturity is definitely not overrated. Uh, being able to, to reach the levels that we describe in the model is really going to give you a competitive edge. And as you were saying, Salisa, it's going to make sure that you actually are delivering the value that you need to be delivering as a learning business. So for next topic, let's talk about business models. So most organizations are, are working to provide a fairly narrow range of online education offerings to members to customers. And that, of course, begs the question, are there other business models to be thinking about, you know, targeting a broader market, um, looking at wholesale, serving other organizations, working with universities, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, and this is, you know, a, a, a very fertile area. There are so many opportunities now. Um, I talk about a number of them in, in one of the chapters of my book, the the leading the learning revolution, it was really just focused specifically on business models, and I'll touch on just uh, three uh, of those right now. Um, the first is, you know, uh, even if you are uh, an individual member organization, like you know a lot of the listeners were in, in this case, uh, selling to institutional buyers can be a big opportunity. And th this goes even for you know solo edupreneurs. Um, uh, those institutional buyers. And it might be a corporation, might be government agencies, might be health systems, you name it. Um, but you know the the main point here is that selling many seats at, at one time and possibly bundles and subscriptions 
really beats the heck out of trying to sell courses one by one, which can can feel like a real slog, particularly when you're when you're just starting out. So you know, thinking about uh, what are the models for you to sell in bulk, uh, basically to uh, to bigger buyers. Now, another opportunity is uh, um, enhancing and extending whatever your existing uh, offers are. So, you know, even something as simple as a webinar can be turned into a, a much richer, higher value, and higher priced offering if you're able to blend it with valuable supporting materials um, or a or a you know a focused and facilitated community element uh, or, or possibly even face-to-face sessions that go along with it. So, you know, think about the different ways you can leverage a single piece of, of source content, a single educational experience. Um, you might be able to pare it down to reduce the value and the price and kind of reach a different segment of your audience, or you might be able to add value to it and increase the price. So really looking at your portfolio in that way, no matter what you're offering right now. And then the third one I'll mention, um, something you know we've been really bullish on and have, have done episodes on is is virtual events. Um, so you know taking that traditional conference type model and running a similar event um, but offered virtually. Um, this is something we've done. We we do actually offer a uh, a virtual conference um, annually, and uh, and we've done episodes on on that as well. But uh, we think there is still a, a great deal to be done with virtual events. Certainly, that applies to associations where events are a big thing, but it also applies really to any educational producer to bring people together in an online event, um, you know, often a, a very economical way to reach a much, much bigger audience with your, your content and your expertise. Now, when I brought up business models, one of the ideas that I threw out, one of the possibilities was, you know, serving other markets. And um, I should say, though, that, uh, you know, you didn't choose to elaborate on that. I did not, no. And that's because we're not really very bullish on going into new markets, at least not until you've really capitalized on lower hanging fruit. And then if and when you do pursue other markets, you really need to find ones that truly share similar characteristics and needs so that you can take your existing products um, into that market. And, you know, because you really want to avoid, um, if at all possible, taking new products into new markets, because that's really high risk and very often can actually take you off mission, um, kind of move you away from, from, you know, what got you started in the first place. Now, Collaboration with academia, on the other hand, um, particularly as a channel for content or a channel for credentials, that can be really powerful. That said, do keep in mind um, that it would require resources and, and a certain level of business development capability that a lot of organizations simply don't have. So you just have to be aware of what's going to be required, the skills and the time that go into that I'll note that we did an episode uh, a while back with Bill Clements of Norwich University, and that was specifically about collaboration with academia. So we'll be sure to include a link to that episode in the show notes. I definitely do recommend checking out that interview with Bill Clements. Uh, he has some some great things to to, to say about uh, how you can work with academia. But but right now, let's shift gears just a little bit and turn to the topic of measuring impact. And, you know, a question that comes up here is, you know, beyond tracking enrollment and completion numbers and test scores, 
how do we recommend measuring the impact of education efforts? Um, you know, because oftentimes uh, the work we do, you know, it feels like it's long term, it's uh, indirect, it's intangible. We're just not really sure how to, to really think about how, how is it that we're moving the dial with the, the students that uh, we're serving. And this is a really important uh, question in, in today's uh, education market. So, you know, first we'd say that, um, you know, definitely work on improving the type of numbers that, uh, that are mentioned here, you know, enrollment numbers, completion numbers, uh, test scores. Uh, for a lot of organizations, that's really where the initial focus should be because they may not be really measuring those in a consistent and methodical way. So, you know, putting the time and effort into to doing that going forward, sharing that, having conversation around that uh, as a team, or if you're if you're on your own, just making sure you're analyzing that and, and making sure that you're getting the kind of movement that you want. So that, having some targets so that you know. Whether yeah, you are achieving. yeah, definitely. You, you know, you you want to make sure what you're that you have an idea of what you're trying to do, and then know whether you're progressing towards that or not. And then beyond that, you know, getting better at evaluation. So collecting feedback from learners that is truly meaningful, which often doesn't happen. Uh, you know, whether it's online or or in you know, conference sessions, seminars, a lot of times... It's pretty cold in here right now. Yeah, yeah. You get that kind of feedback. The food's bad, you know, th- that kind of thing, which doesn't tell you anything about whether learning I- is happening or not. Uh, so, you know, a resource we recommend there is Will Tallheimer, uh, his book, Performance Focused Smile Sheets. Uh, and in fact, anything Will writes, basically. Um, but he really gets at how to ask questions that get much closer to really measuring learning. And that's that's the type of thing you want to be doing with your learning experiences. So it becomes more tangible. Um, it becomes more direct. You can, you can tell whether you're actually having an impact or not. And then the third thing you know, that uh, we'll mention here is making the effort to follow up with at least some portion of learners over the longer term to determine if the education they've received from you has actually positively impacted job performance or, or whatever the aim was. Often it is job performance. Uh, you know, and this, of course, means doing some work up front to assess where learners are before and immediately after any learning experience with you, and then having a formal approach, and that's most often going to be a survey, to follow up at periodic points later. You know, so for example, three months or a year later to assess the outcomes um, and potentially even providing them with uh, some boosting along the way, some questions that you might put out there periodically to help draw their attention back to the learning experience that they had with you and and help them to re-engage and make sure that they're taking what they learned and implementing it, practicing it, making it part of their life on an ongoing basis. Now, you know, for anybody who wants to go deeper on any of this, because we're just just barely scraping the, the, the surface here with these comments, um, we do have an episode with Will Tallheimer, who I just mentioned uh, around the, you know, the, the smile sheets and, and improving your evaluation. Um, we'll link to that. We have an entire episode dedicated to the topic of impact. So if you share our passion for that, um, we'll also be linking to that episode, and that'll give you some more uh, insights and, and tips around uh, uh, impact. And then finally, um, we want to point out uh, that we have a, uh, a session um, from Mark Nillis of Humentum, which was 
call it inside uh, NGO uh, at the time that he did this. Uh, but this was a, a presentation at um, one of our leading learning uh, symposium events on the Brinkerhoff success case method. And this is a way of taking kind of qualitative approaches to whether a, a learning experience has been successful or not and, and making those qualitative approaches a bit more rigorous so you really can tell what people are, are getting out of them. So those are just a, a few resources uh, that we would recommend to you to, to help you go deeper on this whole topic of impact because it can be measured, it should be measured. It's you know much, much more important in today's learning landscape than learning businesses do measure it and demonstrate that they are, in fact, having an impact. So let's shift the topic to developing products. And I suspect many learning businesses start with a a basket of existing products or some ideas, and then they work to make those products or ideas available. And that's kind of the build it and they will come approach. But I also think that many learning businesses know that that can be a dangerous approach and that a more strategic approach to developing products or uh, refining educational offerings over time, that a more strategic approach really is needed, is warranted. So the questions here are, is there a framework for a product development process to follow? How do we figure out what educational offerings various market segments want? And how do we figure out what's most valuable to the market and those market segments? And we won't go real deeply into the answers to to those questions here because we do have a a lot of other resources around this, um, and we'll link to those in the show notes. But uh, you know, I'll start with the the second area first: understanding your market. You do need a solid approach to understanding your market and determining what products make sense. Um, And there are really kind of two key parts to that. Uh, One is consistently monitoring the market so that uh, you have a clear understanding of what audience needs are. Um, In some cases, this is because they're explicitly saying they need something. But in other cases, it's because you're analyzing the signals basically. And so we have a tool called the Market Insight Matrix that uh, basically just outlines an an approach for doing this. So what are some of those ways that you can kind of listen into the market using things like social media, uh, using tools like the the analytics that come with any website uh, these days? What are some ways that you can more explicitly ask the the market, uh, whether that's focus groups or or surveys? And um, the main point of the the matrix is that uh, you need to have a blend, a diverse uh, set of tools that you're using to analyze your market. It can't just be the, let's send out a survey every three or four years and and hope that uh, that's going to give us the information that we need. It's not. That's not going to be reliable. So um, in the matrix, we just, we detailed a a range of different tools that uh, you can choose from. And you don't need to use every tool that's there, but just to make sure that uh, that you're using at least a few different tools to really uh, listen into and and monitor your market. So that's one part of it. And then the, the other part is that you need to understand your own portfolio and where the gaps might be in that portfolio. So, you know, whether you are 
uh, an, an association, a training firm, a, a solo entrepreneur, you know, you've, you've probably already got at least some products that you're putting out there. And you want to look at those kind of across what we call a value ramp. Um, so some of those are likely very low cost or free. They're going to pull people in. Some of them are, are higher priced and you're providing higher value. And when you lay those out across the value ramp, you're going to be able to see, you know, are you telling a story that's kind of accelerating people, pulling them uh, up up the ramp um, of value that you're offering them? Or are there big gaps there? You know, are they potentially getting some free content from you initially, and then there's nothing after that? Um, or you're expecting them to, you know, to to buy a big ticket item right out of the gate where you, when you haven't really provided them any value before that. So we discuss the value ramp in, in detail um, in, in other episodes and in a variety of other places. So we will link to all of those. Um, and then, you know, as far as taking all of that into a, a development uh, process, you want to keep the same mindset you have when analyzing your market and realize that, you know, developing a learning product is actually a learning process process itself. Um, so you have to be iterative. Um, you know, when you're out there listening to your market and trying to figure things out, you're not going to get the answer right away. You, you have to try things out. When you're, when you're trying to structure your portfolio, you're, you're having to, to try things out. You have to do the same thing as you actually develop a product. And, you know, most instructional designers are going to be familiar with uh, ADDIE, A-D-D-I-E, uh, which is the an, uh, analysis, design, development, implementation, evaluation. You know, there's a lot to recommend that. Uh, but you have to allow for more flexibility when you're actually developing uh, products. So, you know, using a, a rapid prototyping approach, um, using um, piloting to test things out. Um, and uh, I actually discuss this in, in, in quite a bit of detail uh, in, in a post that I wrote on it um, that we'll link to uh, in the show notes for this episode as well about, you know, how to create an online course. This takes you through sort of a modified uh, ADI process and, uh, you know, between what you can do with the the market matrix to assess your market, the the value ramp to assess your portfolio, and then an iterative uh, product development process, you know you're going to be in a a much better place to figure out your educational offerings, put things out there that are actually valuable, and that you're actually going to be able to get customers for in the end. Well, and you brought up Addy there, which of course then uh, brings up instructional design. And, and I know that often, especially in early stages, um, that a lot of organizations don't necessarily have the budget for professional instructional design. So then questions come up around what resources are out there to help your organization educate itself about instructional design while you work to build a budget for instructional design. And we have a number of our favorite resources that we'll uh, enumerate here, and we'll um, make sure that in the show notes, if you want to go there, that we have links to more information about these. But you know, we'll highlight a few. So, um, Articulate has a great uh, blog. It's the Rapid E-Learning blog. This is a, you were just talking about the value ramp, Jeff. This is you know a great example of that kind of um, early free uh, content that really pulls people in. Articulate does have a, a software products. Uh, that it offers for e-learning, but the blog itself, uh, just in general, uh, is often a really good source for just thinking about some of what you were talking about with that uh, the rapid prototyping and, and doing things like that. So that's a good source. Uh, Julie Dirksen has a, a book called Design for How People Learn, and we have a podcast interview with Julie, so we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. 
Howard Stolovich um, and his book, Telling Ain't Training. We also have a podcast interview with him that we'll link to. And then another book, E-Learning and the Science of Instruction. And this is by Ruth Clark and Richard Mayer. And this is kind of one of those books that we always uh, refer back to. They have some really great um, research um, that they're pulling in, but then with always this idea to how to practically uh, implement uh, uh, that research. So what does that research actually tell you about how you design learning? Michael Allen's Guide to E-Learning is another great resource. We have an interview with him, so we'll link to that. And um, also, uh, Kathy Moore is a, a great resource, and we have an interview with her, and so we'll link to that. You know, there are a ton of great resources out there. These, though, are some of our top um, uh, picks. And so this, you know, if you go to any of these folks, we'll think that you'll learn some good things and, you know, go to more than one of them and you'll learn some more good things. And I think if listeners haven't already gotten uh, this idea, um, th- this whole episode is sort of a, a poster episode for resources, I think, because we, we have a lot that we link to from this. Uh, it's a nice thing about doing a, a Q&A type session as it uh, often brings up all of these things that are out there. And this, this gives us an opportunity to, to, to talk about them and also to bring them together in, in one place. And we'll, you know, make our usual pitch at the end to make sure you visit the show notes. This is definitely a, an episode in which you are going to want to visit the show notes. Uh, a lot of good links there. And uh, as we're coming down to the home stretch, um, one last area we want to uh, look at, there was a, a, a question area was around, you know, revenue and, and, and pricing. And of course, we are talking about learning business here. Uh, most of the, the people who listen to us do have to actually generate revenue from the educational products that they offer. And so a question here was, you know, if not required for continuing education credits or certification, um, Online education, in particular, is often free, and we certainly see a lot of this in the in the association marketplace. But we see it also much more broadly. Um, so there's always that that worry. You know, are we leaving money on the table? How do we determine the value of our education offerings and set prices? What are some steps we can take to move our online education programs from cost centers to revenue centers, because that that typically is the goal, again, for our listeners who are creating any type of education, uh, online education included. And, you know, I've I've written and spoken about this extensively, uh, and we'll provide some some links to um, some of the the articles where uh, this has been addressed and and other resources. Um, But really, you know, when it when it comes to setting price, and price really is your kind of signal for, for value out in the, the marketplace, um, there are really just three components uh, that, are, that are essential. The first is, what are your customers' uh, points of reference for the offering? What is, what is the main point of reference that they have for whatever you're offering? And you, you have to understand that. When they're coming to you, discovering what you have, and you know potentially making a decision about what to uh, wh- whether to participate or not. They've got they've got something in their head that they're referencing, and this goes back to listening to your market, understanding you know what's going on in your market. You need to understand what that point of reference is. The second is how does the offering fit into your overall product portfolio. Um, and again, we were talking about this a little bit earlier with the value ramp. You usually, you know, have offerings that, that span a range of value, 
and the pricing should reflect where it fits. Any, any given product fits within that range of value. So the product that you're trying to make uh, a pricing decision about, where does it fit within your overall portfolio? Because you want to give it a, a pricing level that's rational um, there. Um, or potentially you need to look across your whole portfolio and make sure that everything is, is rationally priced. But you want uh, the, the story that you tell about value across your portfolio and the prices that are associated with your different offerings uh, to make sense to the, the people that you're selling to. And then finally, how do you add or remove value to impact the previous two points? So, you know, your customers are coming to you with a particular point of reference. They've got other options in mind that they could potentially be buying from your competitors, um, whether they're direct or in- indirect. Um, they've got uh, a vision, uh, whether it's correct or not, of where your offering fits, the, the particular offering fits within your overall portfolio. And so you have to look at whatever it is that you're trying to put a price on and say, okay, how do I add or subtract value here so it makes sense relative to the market? and relative to the portfolio. Um, And if you're looking at something like, you know, online education and uh, competing with free, for example, and uh, and if your customers have a lot of good free reference points, then you need to be thinking about, okay, what value am I adding to whatever I offer? um, And how do I situate that in my overall portfolio in a way that it, it makes it compelling for my prospective customers to pay for that offering? Now, this is all simple and straightforward. It's not necessarily easy to do. Um, but I will make a, a couple of uh, related suggestions um, to, to really generating more revenue from your educational products. And the, the first of those is, you know, the number one thing that, that most learning businesses uh, can do to become, you know, more of a revenue center, to increase their, their revenue, uh, to, 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 you know, bring more money in for their educational offerings is simply to start charging if you're not uh, already. uh, In a lot of cases, particularly online education gets offered as kind of a lost leader. Stop doing that. Start charging. Or um, if you are charging, consider charging more because usually you can raise your prices from anywhere, you know, to 10 to 25% with nobody batting an eyelash. Um, And you'll automatically increase your net revenues by doing that. So consider charging and or charging more as a first move. And then second, and over the longer term, you have to do the kinds of things we've already been talking about. You know, put the effort into really understanding your market, uh, put the effort into rationalizing your portfolio and and how the, the different parts of it relate in terms of value to each other, and really focus in on articulating and delivering value. And again, you know, all of this is uh, simple, straightforward, um, not necessarily easy to do. But once you really start focusing in on it and using some of the tools and, and resources we've talked about here, um, you'll have the opportunity to really determine how to, to get the most out of the, uh, your educational offerings. So this has been a look at some real-world questions about learning business strategy, about business models, about uh, many things. And what we've been talking about all along are resources that can help you on that trajectory um, as you're looking to become a more mature learning business. So we really encourage you to check out the show notes for this episode. And to do that, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 156. 
And when you check out the show notes, you'll see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, we'd be truly grateful if you would subscribe. It helps us get some data on the impact of what we're doing. And of course, impact was one of those topics that we covered during the episode. We'd also be grateful if you would take a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. You can go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes, and that will put you in the right place. Jeff and I personally appreciate your rating and review, but more importantly, reviews and ratings help the podcast crop up in the search results when people look for topics that we cover. So please do us and your learning business peers a favor and go leave a rating and a review for the Leading Learning Podcast. And we'd be grateful if you'd take a minute to visit ReviewMyLMS.com. Salise and I put a lot of effort into the Leading Learning Podcast, and one of the main reasons we're able to do that is because we generate revenue through other sources like Review My LMS. So please take a minute to go and leave a review uh, if, if you can, um, or subscribe if you're not in a position to, to leave a review, and you'll know that you're helping to support the Leading Learning Podcast. Finally, consider telling others about the podcast. You can send out a pre-populated tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share, or if tweeting isn't your thing, pick the social network or other medium of your choice and spread the good word. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.